One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Nigerian writer Igoni Barrett. He has written two short story collections and a novel. His novel, Black Ass, tells the story of Furrow, a black Nigerian who wakes up transformed into a white man on the day of a big job interview. Now with red hair and green eyes, Furrow takes on his native Lagos with an entirely new perspective and reality. We began the discussion talking about the genesis of Barrett's plot idea. I mean, there were two things. In the first place, it was an idea I had um, put down in my pocket notebook some years ago while I was still writing my second story collection. And the, the idea was encapsulated in one sentence which went like this. A young man wakes up on the morning of his job interview to discover that he's white. Um, I you know, kept that sentence was there for many years. I didn't know what I was going to do with it until I decided it was time to write a novel. You know, After I'd finished my short story collection, I decided now I would attempt my first novel. And I went through several ideas I'd put in my notebook. And... Um, in the end, found that the idea that intrigued me, you know, most was the this sentence about the young man waking up. And then at that point, when I had decided that was the story I was going to tell, I realized it was, you know, similar to the metamorphosis. So you know, I went back to reread the metamorphosis, and one of the things I got out of this the, the story of Kafka's story this time 
my reading of Gregor Zamza's character, Gregor Zamza is the main character in the Metamorphosis, and my reading of his character, and um, and I was kind of rooting for him, you know, to to escape his family, to go out into the world and and um, explore his incertitude. And when he didn't, he remained at home and eventually died. I realized that my character, my main character, was going to be, in many ways, the polar opposite of Gregor Zamza. But then I sat down to write the book, and once my character took the first decision in my book, you know, that decision to leave home, I realized that the metamorphosis was basically, I was done with the metamorphosis, and it was time to set out on my own. So that was the that was how the metamorphosis came into you know, linked with my story, but also how my story differed from it. One of the things I was wondering is this idea of waking up white has such obvious social ramifications in America. What does that mean to wake up white in Nigeria? Maybe if you could explain to our American audience that I don't know if it's different or not than here. It is different. And that's one of the things I wanted to explore in the book. Nigerians are fond of saying we have no racism in our society because, after all, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a society that's nearly 99.9% black. You know, we have very few white Nigerians, and they are usually questioned all the time about their Nigerianness. You know, so if in the book you'll find that, every, you know, almost everybody who comes across the main character uh, are surprised at his, his accent and, quest, you know, question, you know, ask him how can he be Nigerian. White people in Nigeria are considered foreigners, even if, you know, even if they had been born in Nigeria and they carried Nigerian passports, they're still seen as, you know, foreigners. And so I wanted to explore that in the book. That idea of deciding a person's nationality or what a person is based only on skin color. But then I also wanted to, you know, to look at the, the ramifications of that that way of looking at people for Nigerians. What I realized in writing the book is that if you, as a, a black Nigerian, see someone and you are already, already making judgments and making assumptions based only on their skin color. That also says something about you, you know, about black people, because then it means you're also making assumptions about other black people based on their skin color. So, for example, maybe probably probably black um, American in Nigeria will be considered Nigerian until he proves that he's not. So I wanted to kind of question that, you know, question that fact that we, you know, Nigeria in many ways, like the states sometimes, feels like a universe unto itself and refuses to look outside or consider other possibilities for, you know, people's ways of existence. Yeah, it is interesting when you talk about how Black people view each other because your main character, Furrow, wakes up on the day of his job interview and he's white and he slips out of his house and he makes it to the job interview and it's almost like once he shows up, at first people think he's in the wrong place. But then when he says that he's there for the interview, they kind of roll out the red carpet and they want a man exactly like him. And so what does that say about all the other applicants who were black? There's a, a section in the book where I say um, the white 
person in Nigeria is basically, you know, considered to have a dollar sign stamped on their head. And it's a way of looking at people. So the average Nigerian considers the white men foreigners, you know, so they probably come from rich countries with good educational systems and have access to opportunities. And so that's the that's the view that the average black Nigerian will consider the average white man in Nigeria to be better educated, to be to be wealthier. And so there's always that surprise, usually that surprise when the white man tries to to mix with the average Nigerian. Now that is a stereotype that has its roots in reality. Because the vast majority of white people in Nigeria are foreigners. And the vast majority of them are rich, you know, are wealthy because they work for the multinationals or the global bureaucracies and they drive around in you know, are carried around in chauffeured cars and they don't mix. They, you know, they usually stay in their secluded, you know, areas and don't mix. And so over time that has become the view of whites in Nigeria. So when you find the exceptional one, you know, it usually is a, you know, shock to the system. You know, Nigeria is not a country that gets many tourists. It's not a country that gets many American or, you know, white students. It's not a country where you get backpackers. So so the, the, the interaction between many Nigerians who've never traveled, you know, and, you know, white people in Nigeria is usually in a position of... Um, the, the whites are usually in a position of economic power, and so that dictates the 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 way many Nigerians view them, and so the anomaly is usually you know viewed with suspicion. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Igoni Barrett, author of the novel Black Ass. You wrote in your book, you're, you're talking about identity, and you said... No one asks to be born, to be black or white or any color in between. And yet the identity of 
person is born into becomes the hardest to explain in the world. Can you talk a little bit about how maybe writing this, if at all, changed how you saw yourself in the world? When I started writing the book, I quickly realized it was a book about identity, about the way we adapt ourselves to society's view of us. You know, I, I, I began to realize that you might not consciously make decisions, you know, to fit into society or to become what society wants you to be or, you know, views you as. But that happens because you are, you know, no person is an island. You are rooted in a society. And, um, and that begins to, you know, to mold the way you are, to mold what you become. And so I wanted to, you know, see the pressures that, for example, an unusual person, someone who's considered unusual in a society, you know, the pressures they deal with. Now it could be, you know, a minority, a black person in the States. You deal with societal pressures there, you know, coming from the majority. It might be a minority, you know, person, a white man in Nigeria. And I want, you know, so that was what I was interested in, seeing how, individuals react to the pressures of society. Um, and in writing Furo's story, I mean, I thought he made some decisions that I wouldn't have made. Um, I thought he might have, you know, fought harder to defend who he thought he was. But then I could also understand a lot of the decisions he took, the paths he, he set out on. And so in, on, in empathizing with him, I also began, in a, in a sense, to understand what my internalized views of the world were and how to begin to question that. Because as human beings, we always have prejudices. We, have, you know, we, 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 we exist because of stereotypes. You know, you see you know, a lion walking down the road, and your assumption is that lions eat people. So you avoid it. That's how you, you, know, you avoid danger. But then sometimes you need to question that. You need to question your stereotypes to be, you know, to be a fully formed human being. You can't always. I mean, if you see a lion and it's on a leash, you know, you, you question. If you see, you know, if you assume that there are no green people in the world and you come across a green person, you need you don't you don't just turn around and run away. You question is this, is it green because he painted himself green, or is it because he's just you know, bond that way. You, you know, you need to question your assumptions. That was what I was trying, you know, one of the things I was trying to explore in the book, to see how characters would begin to look beyond the main character's defining characteristic, which is whiteness, and try to understand him as a human being and see that he's just one of us. One of the things I found interesting was that Furrow, so he wakes up white, he escapes his family because he just doesn't want them to see him. And he also sees it as an out. And he just wanted to start over. Plus, he didn't really know how to explain that he turned white. But they thought he was missing. They put wanted ads. They His sister started tweeting. Can you talk a little bit more about this relationship with his family and his decision? He was a character that, for me, representative of many Nigerian young people, you know, of the middle class who went to universities, have, you know, have a good education, and yet can't find jobs. I mean, this is a country with 
Sometimes they even say now it's more than 50% unemployment. I mean, that's why so many Nigerians migrate. So many Nigerians go to other parts of the world and excel in going to the medical field, going to nursing, going to everything into professional, you know, occupations and do well. But in Nigeria, they, they can't succeed because there are no opportunities. And so Furo was desperate to succeed. He was desperate to to get a job, to strike out on his own. At 33, he was still living with his parents. And he was also kind of jealous of his sister, who seemed to be effortlessly successful. You know, so there was that dynamic where, of course, he loved his family. He was grateful to them for supporting him and housing him. But at the same time, he felt he needed to find himself. And when he left home in the beginning, it was because of his job interview. He'd been applying for you know jobs for years, and this was only the second time he'd been invited for an interview. And so he was desperate to go for that interview. But once he entered society, and the reaction to him, you know, showed that there was you know that something had changed, and that there was this new opportunity for him to to take. He he took it. You know, he decided. Well, if this is the only path for me in Nigeria to succeed, then I'm going to take it. And that's what he did. You know, and I mean, Nigeria several years ago had a reputation for producing a lot of um, um, internet fraudsters. You know, and um, that became a problem in Nigeria at the time, partly because of unemployment, because you had all these, you know, these crowds of young, educated people with access to the internet, and no jobs. They could, you know, hardly, they were living with their parents or they were homeless, and they needed to find a way to earn a living. And for many people, they turned to criminal activity because that was what was, you know, open to them. So they, you know, they turned and they looked to the West. And it's not so much because these people were bad people or badly brought up in, in many cases. It was because there was, you know, there were so few opportunities, and this seemed like such an open path to take that so many people jumped into it. When the government, government, Nigerian government, began to crack down on that that practice, a lot of people stopped. And, you know, it became harder to do it until a lot of people found other ways to earn a living. But this was, you know, so I wanted to show that also how, you know, government failure can also affect the psychology of the individuals in that society and how the need to succeed at some point might make people take decisions like Furo did, which is to leave their families behind and to to deceive the world if they need if need be. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Igoni Barrett, author of the novel Black Ass. Well, one of the things that you folded into your book is you have this journey of Furrow, but one of uh, one of his early experiences and a character that returns to the book a few times is when he's desperate at the mall looking for a place to go. He meets a writer named Egoni. Can you talk a little bit about about this? This character ends up being fascinated by Furrow, wanting to search for him later, and at the same time is going through his own transition to become a woman. I knew the book was about identity, and I wanted to expand that conversation to include other forms of identity. 
at the time I was writing this book, there was um a, there was a major conversation in Nigeria about um about the rights of gay people to their sexuality because the Nigerian government had just passed an anti what they, what we called an anti-gay bill. So it was a, a bill against you know um, homosexual marriage in Nigeria, even though. To the best of my knowledge, no Nigerian had come out to say they wanted to get married in Nigeria. But you know, the, the Nigerian government was reacting to the U.S. government, you know, passing of you know gay marriage bills, and um, I was trying to, you know, whip up public public sentiment to distract people from other more pressing issues. And in that sense, you, you so suddenly the gay community in Nigeria found themselves to be political football, you know, people, you know, they were being talked about, they were, and at some point when the, it was, the bill was finally passed into law, it basically threatened them with seven years, you know, in prison for just expressing affection in public among people of the same sex. So for me, it felt like I needed to reflect that in the book, you know, about identity and try and get that conversation out there. Because a lot of people I spoke with, with will say, oh, you know, gay issues are not an African thing, they are a Western thing, it's, it's you know, it's America's problem. You know, no, And I wanted to create a character who was Nigerian and um, who made that decision to transition from man to woman. But at the same time, I was also, in a sense, being playful and, um, well, playfully investigating or, you know, um, exploring the idea of what a writer's job is. You know, I, this was my first novel, and I knew, you know, from, you know, from all I'd learned about writing that, you know, usually... It is expected that the the, the first-time novelist writes about himself. You know, it's either a coming-of-age story, or it's a story that is close to the writer's experiences. You know, and so I initially wanted to rebel against that—that that I wasn't going to write about myself, or you know, or write about the young man growing up in a family and and such. But another point I also realized: well, if I decide not to write about myself because people expect me to, then in a sense, I am already being controlled by the expectations. And so I changed my mind and decided to write about the version of myself in that book, in the book. But it was also, you know, about what the process of writing is. You know, the way, as writers, we steal. You know, we steal from other people's lives. We watch, we observe, and we we use people's sentences and people's words to create stories. And so I wanted to give a quite literal example of that process by having this character who's named after the book's author follow the main character trying to get his story. One of the things that came up enough in the book that I noticed it was references to Fela. I'm assuming this is Fela Kuti? Yes, it is. What was relevant about him coming up um, so often? Yeah, Fela is the 
in Nigeria, we call Fela the um, Abamieda. In a sense, the, he's the, in many ways, the um, king of Nigerian music. I mean, Fela was really popular among young people and not so much, among, you know, not, not, not as popular with their parents. I remember growing up and um, adults, you know, telling us not to listen to Fela's music, that he was vulgar and he was, a rebel, and you know he he would lead people down the wrong path, and um, so Fela became for many of us, for people of my generation, became um, the sort of music you listen to to rebel against your parents. Um, these days, he's become since his death, he's become more accepted by you know everyone in society. I mean, there is a scene in the book where some of the characters go to a restaurant that is quite you know, in an affluent part of Lagos, and it's visited by rich folk. And um, and Fela's music is playing. Well, in the 70s, you know, the wealthy class, the ruling class in Nigeria will never play Fela's music. You know, he was because he was calling for revolution. He was singing against them. He was even naming them in his music, you know, calling out their names and saying they were destroying the country with their corruption and their bad you know, leadership. But then since his death, they have kind of pulled him in, taken his, accepted his music as part of Nigeria's heritage. And now he's played, you know, his music is played at um, weddings and naming ceremonies. So it's almost the, I'm trying to look for the right words here, but Fela has basically been turned into pop music by many people. And so I wanted to point out his importance to Nigerian culture and to the way Nigerians still fight for, you know, looking for change in the society and how Fela's music still chimes in with that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Igoni Barrett, author of the novel Black Ass. Well, can you talk about a writer that influenced you as you were coming up or writing this book? The writer who, who made me decide to become a writer was um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, whose work I came across by chance and suddenly realized that I could, you know, write about Nigeria in a way that um, could, you know, engage the world. Because up till that point, I'd been reading, a lot of what I'd been reading had been American novels, you know, British novels, the classics, the Russians. I hadn't seen myself as this black Nigerian reflected in this novel. So I, I enjoyed the novels, but I, there was still something missing which was my immediate, you know, preoccupation, you know, as an African in an, in an African country. And so when I read Marquez, it felt different. It was about Colombia. It was this Colombian writer writing about Colombians, and it, it seemed to be directly confronting issues, you know, within his society. 
So it just felt new, and it felt, and the Caribbean in many ways felt similar to Nigeria. So I think that was the first time I realized that I can actually write about Nigerians in an interesting way. And so that, you know, that for me felt like a template, like an example of what I could do, and um, gave me the um, confidence to finally go and learn how to write. Do you have a passage from that that you'd like to read? Well, I don't from his book because I left, um, I didn't, I'm in the States now and I didn't travel with my copies of that. But then there's another Nigerian writer who I was inspired by. He's, a, he's primarily a poet and released one novel in the 60s, in the 1960s in Nigeria, one of the first Nigerian novels. And um, he's been largely forgotten in Nigeria. He's collected um, poems are coming out in the States this year. He's, he's now in his 90s. But this novel, in fact, I've been looking for the, the novel. I had an old copy of it in Nigeria, and I've been looking for it, and only found it when I came to the States on this visit. And so I'll read a passage from that book. It's a book called The Voice by Gabriel Okara. Here goes. The only hard thing, rather one of the two hard things, is knowing your purpose in this world. The other which is harder is not to corrupt it after knowing what your purpose is. That's the section. And why did you choose that? It, it speaks to what I feel is at the heart of the Nigerian condition. I mean, one of the ideas I tried to tackle in, in Blackers was to you know, put forward the question that if a society like Nigeria you know, keeps looking outside, you know, look, keeps looking to the West, keeps looking outside it, it, outside of itself for what it should be, you know, keeps looking to the West for models of what it should be, then how can it ever become itself? You know, that, that was a question I felt that, you know, I, I felt I tried to touch on in the book. Can you read something that you wrote that, you're proud of or something that changed a lot from the first draft or something that was tricky to write? Now, this is um, a section from Blackers that was, um, that changed a bit from the first draft, but then also was um, tricky to write for me. And it goes, vultures, hyenas, Vegas taxi drivers, in rising order of cunning, greed, hard-heartedness. Furo was convinced after 40 minutes of standing by the roadside opposite the passport office. And when his legs grew tired, he walked some distance away to a new spot along the road. But that didn't help. Every taxi that pulled up, ordinary yellow, special red, metro black, or unpainted kabu-kabu, sped away empty, the drivers unwilling to reduce their inflated prices. Fuhr knew why, as did everyone who witnessed his heated haggling. A white man in Lagos has no voice louder than the dollar sign branded onto his forehead. Furo's frustration turned to anger. Anger directed everywhere. Everywhere he turned, he made discoveries about this new place he had lived in all his life. Life in Lagos was locked in a constant struggle against empathy. Empathy was too much to ask for, too much to give. It was good only for beggars to exploit 
in their sub-stories aimed at your pockets through your heart. Heart, in Lagos idiom, meant guts, metal, even recklessness, but rarely compassion. Where do you write? Well, I write in my study in Lagos. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Usually I, I binge watch sci-fi movies or I go to my local bar to, to watch the revelers. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? These days it's my wife, Famke, who's a journalist and writer herself. And how have you dealt with rejection? The way I deal with rejection is by mostly, it's usually by rejecting what that rejection means to me. What is your favorite word? That changes all the time. At the moment, it seems to be excruciating. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Nigerian author Igoni Barrett. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.